Well, good morning, everyone. I trust you've had a good holiday. Sometimes the holidays are difficult because we have memories of people that are gone. And um, so if you're one of those, um, may the Holy Spirit uh, comfort you. In the book of Revelation, the first chapter, which we're going to speak about um, over the next few minutes, uh, I would like to turn from what's happened in the past to where we're going in the future. Uh, the new year is almost upon us, and uh, you will be bombarded in the next week through commercials and various other things uh, with challenges to make resolutions, uh, maybe to purchase things, change uh, directions, turn over a new leaf. And so I want to move in the direction of what this year will look like with respect to you and this book right here. What is your, what is your relationship to the Word of God? Um, in this particular passage that we're going to look at in Revelation chapter 1, John was uh, banished to the island of Patmos, uh, which was, uh, it wasn't really an exile, it was really a banishment. He was kicked out, probably kicked out of Ephesus. Um, Patmos was an island uh, about uh, 50 miles southwest of the, the city of Ephesus, which is on the coast of the Aegean Sea, which is the western coast of Turkey, between Turkey and Greece. And he was sent there, uh, and he tells us why. And so when we come to verse 9, this is what we read. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom, and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for what? For the word of God. He was banished to the island of Patmos for the word of God. And for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was paying a price for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. When was the last time you paid a price for the Word of God? When is the last time that the Word of God cost you something? <clears throat> My intention this morning is to orient your mind toward your Bibliology. What is your theology of the Bible? 
What do you believe about the Bible? What do you say you believe about the Bible? How does your life manifest your commitment or lack of commitment to the Word of God? Is it, in fact, the Word of God? And what do you intend over the next 10 years to do with the Word of God? Let me repeat myself. What do you intend to do over the next 10 years with the Word of God? I'm not talking about a New Year's resolution that will last a week. I'm not talking about this year. I'm talking about the next 10 years. How old are you right now? I want you to think in your mind. In 2024, how old will you be? Um, Where will you be? Will you be here? Some of us aren't going to be here next year. We're not. Some of us will probably die in this, ne- this coming year. Some of us, are, our kids will get sick. We might lose jobs. We might uh, uh, have hardship. Maybe there'll be some kind of uh, uh, societal problem, wars, um, If you project into the future, what does your future hold? What dreams do you have? What fears do you have? In 10 years, where will you be? And I want you to draw a picture of how your life would be different if you made a solid, systematic commitment to the Word of God. I'm sure John... We don't know whether this was in uh, 67 A.D. or 90 A.D. There's some confusion, doubt, whether that when this was written. But regardless of when it was written, written I'm sure he was an old man. Uh, you know, it's 35 or maybe even 65 years after the death of Jesus. And uh, he's paid a price for the Word of God. Maybe he's thinking, my, is my life any any? Any good? Should I ever have left Galilee? You know, it would be nice fishing on the Lake of Galilee. You know, it would be nice to be up there. Uh, Rather than here, it's kind of cold. Out here in this uh, barren kind of island where I never really had an intention of being. He was probably an elder in 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 the church in Ephesus and banished from Ephesus because of the church was making such a making such a difference in society in in Ephesus that he was banished to Patmos because they had a sister cult with uh, the goddess Diana on the island of Patmos. So he's probably sent there as punishment for what the church had been doing in the uh, in in Ephesus. And uh, but you know what he. It said, we just read, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He hadn't given up. He hadn't changed his commitment. Even though he was on the island of Patmos for uh, the Word of God, his preaching and giving testimony about Jesus, he still was in the Spirit. Now... There's no bulletin notes, but there's the back of the financial sheet. So I'm going to give you about eight points, give or take. I might add five or ten in the process, but about eight, eight tests of uh, uh, things that are shown to us in this text that reveal John's commitment to the Word of God. 
Let's read it. Beginning in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. And his feet were like brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lived and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So first of all, the word of God is costly. We just talked about that, that it cost him banishment. Don't know if he's with his wife, his children, don't know whether he's alone, don't know whether he's in prison, whether he's free to roam around Patmos, don't really know. But it was punishment. It's not like he was sent to Bermuda, right? Um, Sometimes we don't want to get up in the morning for the Word of God. We don't want to stay up late because we've watched too many movies. Sometimes we don't, we don't want to enroll in a Bible course or make an extra commitment to read a theological book and learn about the scriptures. Many times we, we, we don't feel like it. Here's a man who is banished for his love for the word of God. This afternoon, I'm supposed to have a Skype chat with a Baptist pastor in New Zealand about a tribal group that his church has committed to 500 miles out into the Pacific between Hawaii and Australia. So if you take a plane 3,000 miles to Hawaii from California and then you take another plane 3,000 miles to uh, 
what used to be called the New Hebrides, you'll find in 30 islands where people live very primitively, like in the Stone Ages, one of the most dense language groups in the world, 113 languages in 225,000 people. This man has taken four trips with his church to a group of people that can't read and write. There's a commitment of a church for the Word of God to teach them the scriptures when they don't have a Bible and they can't read. He and his wife have decided to learn the pidgin language of this group um, because the migrant workers fly from that island to New Zealand to work in the orchards during harvest time so that he can reach them. And then when they go back, they can go back and, and disciple the Christians that, the, that they've... Uh, um, led to the Lord. 150 years ago, there was a man by the name of John Patton that went to those islands. He was a Scottish Presbyterian missionary. And when he landed, the people were cannibals. They were aggressive. They didn't wear much clothing. He took his pregnant wife, and she gave birth three months after they arrived. She died 19 days later. Um, uh, yeah, 19 days later, and 36 days later, the baby died. He stayed there on those islands working with uh, these people who had never heard the gospel, uh, even though the islands were discovered in the 1600s. <clears throat> he stayed there, went back to Scotland, got married again, brought his wife back. They had 10 children. Four of them died uh, at, in infancy on the island. He worked for 45 years amongst these people. He was so committed that when they chased him off of one island, he went to another one. In, after 40 years, he printed the New Testament. John Patton, his, his son, decided to become a missionary to the islands. There was a revival on the island that John Patton was on, and they all, the whole island became converted. Well, in the midst of losing a wife and a and a, and a child, and then uh, subsequently four more children. By the time he died, there were 25 missionaries out of 30 islands. 25 of those islands had missionaries on them. Now, friends, that is commitment to the Word of God. And sometimes we cannot even get out of bed because we stayed up watching Fox News. We, we don't know in America what a commitment to the Word of God is. We have ten copies. They, most nine of them gather dust, and one of them we dust on our bedstand, but do we pull it down? <clears throat> Listen, the first measure of our commitment to the Word of God is, has it cost us something? Has it cost you anything? Don't tell me this is the word of God. Don't tell me it's the word of God when it costs you nothing. You are a liar. A liar. 
because you think this is a suggestion. Is this the word of God or is it not the word of God? It's ridiculous. We grow up in a culture and we pretend. We pretend it's the word of God. We spend more time on Facebook wanting to know who posted rather than look at what God has posted. We want to tweet our Twitter account so other people can read or see what we've been doing rather than finding out what God wants us to do. We have reversed a fundamental value in our culture that the words of men are more important than the words of God. And if you exact from your own life the quantity test of how much time you've spent in the Word of God this week, are you a minute Christian or are you an hour Christian? Can you measure your commitment to the Word of God in seconds or in hours? Because it's not really the Word of God if you only spend a few minutes a week in it. It is a suggestion. In fact, it's less important to to you than the Christmas TV specials. Oh, well, that's not true. You're being quite mean. No. John was on the island of Patmos for the word of God. It cost him something. Now, in our um, sophistication, we can put it on our phone because we don't want to walk out of the house with this because the neighbor might think that I'm a dinosaur if I'm carrying this with a little thing hanging off of it. Catch the pages. It's much more sophisticated. I got the Bible here. Don't need this. I got that. Well, that's fine. But do you measure your time in hours or minutes? The funny thing about this passage right here is John's back was to the Word of God. If you read, look what it says. In verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. The Word of God is a trumpet. You know, whenever I raise my voice when I preach, my children always say, Why'd you raise your voice? That's like scary. Listen, the word of God was a trumpet. It was sounding. John was attuned. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He heard the trumpet, but it was behind him. And he turned. He had to turn to see who was talking. Don't think that you're better than John because when the trumpet of God sounds in your life, it costs you Not only did it cost you to get where you're at, but then once you hear it again, you have to turn away from whatever you're doing and focus on God. What are you focused on this morning? Because the trumpet is sounding. It sounds, to me, it sounds all day long. The word of God just sounds. It's a trumpet. It goes off in my ears all day long. And I must turn to look at it. And so often I don't because I'm distracted, got kids, got wife, got plans, got preoccupations. 
do I turn to hear the trumpet? Vision follows adjustment. Vision follows adjustment. When he turned to see the voice, he faced the Savior. Some of you, you grew up in church, heard sermons all your life. Uh, it was mama's religion, daddy's religion, grandpa's religion, grandma's religion. They had a Bible that was worn. Your Bible's not worn. And every now and then that trumpet goes off and God says, turn, turn to see the voice that speaks with you. Um, and this is what you hear and see when you turn. Uh, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, verse 12, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool and white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet were like brass as if refined in the fire and his voice as of the sound of many waters what's your picture of Jesus this morning is it the babe lying in the manger because I guarantee you that's not my vision of Jesus the incarnation the Word made flesh that dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul, who wrote 12 or 13 books in the New Testament, never mentions the baby Jesus. He does not. He doesn't talk about the manger. He talks about the cross over and over again. He talks about the resurrection. Being found and made in the fashion of, as a man, he, he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He's Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, when we have a manger view of Jesus and not the creator, the world, the sustainer, by him all things exist. In the book of Hebrews it says, through whom also he made the worlds. God has created by his word the worlds, and Jesus sustains the world. And when we have a concept of Jesus as the meek and lowly one and not the triumphant one, when we get to the book of Revelation and we see him white with eyes of flame of fire and feet like brass and out of his mouth a two-edged sword, we don't like that view of Jesus because it doesn't match the one that society has pawned off on us. Listen, John, who was paying the price for the word of God, saw Jesus for who he was, the Almighty. Because when you look in verse number 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. John saw Jesus, the Almighty. 
His hair was like white like wool, and his eyes were a flame of fire, and out of his mouth came a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's the presentation of who Jesus is, the word of God. And yet, culturally, we do not accept the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, even though it's mentioned quite a number of times in the book of Revelation, and it is not gentle. The word of God slices us and discerns whether we're really who we need to be. His countenance was like the sun shining in its, in its strength. Is your view of Jesus the regal, majestic, almighty God whose eyes are a flame of fire and whose mouth is a two-edged sword, shining as the brightness of the sun, at whose feet you fall dead? Because that's what happens next. If you look at the text, it says... Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he said, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. My friend, Jesus is the first and the last. He's your first thought, he's your last thought. He's the beginning of your theology, and he writes the last chapter. ESPN is not the first and the last. Fox News is not the first and the last. Facebook is not the first and the last. Your novels are not the first and the last. This church, by the way, is not the first and the last. My preaching is not the first and the last. The pastor is not the first and the last. Your mama's not the first and the last. Your grandmother's not the first and the last. Jesus is the first and the last. He's the Word made flesh. He's the Word of God. What is your view of the Word of God? You're a Christian. You espouse Christianity. But where is Jesus in your theology? Where is your bibliology? Where will you be in 10 years? I want to draw a picture of you, for you, of what your child... Uh, will have to face in her lifetime. Uh, Sally's in kindergarten now. She has access to Netflix and Amazon Fire Stick, and she can access 150,000 movies right now. She wants a phone like her big brother where she can search all kinds of filth, and po- things can pop up on her screen at any given moment. She also has, wants a Google account so she can talk to friends all around. And then when she, she logs on, she log, logs into a, into a chat uh, or, or starts talking to somebody who's in India, who's a Hindu, and says, you ought to read the Vedas. And the, and, and the Muslim starts trying to witness to her to convert to Islam. She becomes uh, uh, threatened by cultural relativity. And... Um, 
your way is okay for you, my way is okay for me, and then um, we all end up in a moral relativism and our biblical epistemology and our biblical uh, interpretation and our hermeneutics about a literal word of God is out the window or in doubt. Um, Genesis becomes, uh, threatens to become simply an allegory. Uh, Jonah never got swallowed by a fish. Uh, she starts to um, grow up. She becomes 10 years old and gets into a dance class with other little girls next to her and um, finds out that her, one of her good friends is a Jehovah's Witness and gives her um, a little Bible study book and tries to uh, work on her and her family. She goes home and she starts surfing the net. Now, if this is 2019, and with the, the, the expansion of fiber optics and processor speeds, um, she starts gaming. Um, she does esports and uh, against the global audience. It's hard to discern the difference between who are the real characters and who are the, who are the fictitious ones because they all look the same. And her character is desensitized to violence and and uh, sexual filth, and she gets into all kinds of places where she shouldn't be. Um, she starts having wear wearable technology wrapping around her wrist. She can surf the net at any time. Um, <clears throat> there's no more music downloads because everything's live streamed, and she can just click on something and put it in her ear and listen to any music she wants all over the world. She doesn't have to download it. It's just streamed into her mind. Uh, <clears throat> of course, Polygamy is becoming near to being legalized because we have so many Muslims that are allowed up to four wives and Mormons who have multiple wives. Now we have TV shows right now, what it will be like in 10 years, when your child has to ask you, why can't somebody have more than one wife? <clears throat> the Common Core Standards, um, by the way, the... the uh, Walt McDonald, the vi executive vice president of the ETS, Educational Testing Service, who was in charge of Common Core initiatives for the Educational Testing Services, now the president. They're the ones, the president of ETS, they're the ones who produced SATs, GREs, uh, TOEFL, and all of that. So all of the tests in America are going to be aligned with the Common Core, and every homeschooler, every Christian person is going to have to Every Christian school is going to have to determine whether or not they want to align with the Common Core and how's that going to go. Um, because the testing that's driving the process, and don't think because you're in the PA standards or you're in the Christian school or you're a homeschooler, you're not going to have to deal with it. It's going to permeate our culture. Just wait 10 years and see where we're at. This is where we're at today. So the school system is pressuring our kids to conform not only to academic standards, but there's moral impl implications that lie beyond this, and don't think that they're not. Of course, if you look at uh, the states that have adopted for a long time outcomes-based education and test-driven models, Ma uh, Maryland and New York, and the secularization of your culture, or cultures around you, don't think that it isn't going to happen in Pennsylvania. Um, by um, maybe by the year 2024, we'll have a mosque in uh, Elizabethtown. Maybe in Hershey, maybe in Mannheim. It won't be long. Um, the youth are being assaulted on every side. 
Uh, it doesn't look cool to be a Christian. And um, when, when as Christians we're standing against euthanasia and uh, which is mercy killings, they wanna, they're, they're gonna start wanting to um, have um, mercy killings of people with Parkinson's and terminally ill cancers and that sort of thing. Uh, common law marriage is going to turn into, which already is, concubinage, civil unions, domestic partnerships, uh, interdependent relationships, registered partnerships. Okay, medicine makes advances in 2024, and it seems, wow, science is great. I ought to be, I shouldn't be a Christian because after all, there's such technological advances all around me. In fact, we should harvest uh, fetal tissues from aborted infants and harvest those tissues and implant them in, in, in patients because after all, uh, look at how much good it's doing. So there's, there's probably not too far into the future, uh, although ethics probably will restrain some of this, fetal tissue harvesting and strange things like that. Um, globalization will advance, but the world's poor will get larger. We're not gonna, projections are that the poor are gonna grow. There's gonna be more poor in t 10 years than there are a lot more poor, and they're not gonna be helped at all. So Christians are going to be pressured even more so than now to adopt a, um, uh, uh, a justice, a social justice policy, which is great, which we should have. My daughter works for an organization like that, but it doesn't replace the Word of God, which we're getting back to, but I haven't finished the, my picture of what your child's going to have to deal with in 10 years. Um, when a church articulates a moral perspective on sexual orientation, on education, uh, we're going to be looked at as abusive to children. Um, Little Sally wants to play soccer, of course, and all the games are on Sunday, which they already are, but they're going to, you know, uh, church, it's like nothing. We're still in Lancaster County, everywhere else in the world. They're, they're already there. Um, righteousness and holiness are going to become a lot more difficult, look a lot more arcane, and um, the world is going to push on us the view of the Galilean fishermen and the baby in the manger and not the coming Jesus who in Revelation chapter 19 his robes are dipped in blood and on his thigh is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords and his eyes are a flame of fire and out of his mouth goes a two-edged sword with which it says he'll smite the nations and the, our view of Jesus has left us with this open door of optionalness to whether or not we read the Word of God. And so more than likely, our kids will be more casual than ever, and the confusion over science and religion will be greater, and the vision of Jesus will be one of cutesiness, and the trumpet of the word of God becomes muted by a thousand factors and turns our kids' hearts away from the eternal Son of God who loved us and gave his life for us. The sword is going to, the image of Jesus' sword 
coming out of his mouth and people falling dead as dead is going to get lost. So I have a couple tests for you. The first is the quantity test. How much time do you spend in this? Secondly, the quality test. What is the seriousness with which you approach your study of the Word of God? The desire test. It's got to be based in love. It can't be based out of fear and obligation. Um, I love Saturdays. Best day in the week. I can get up as early as I want to. I can read unhindered the Word of God. Um, Everyone's going to sleep in. Um, I have no obligations, and it's just God and me. And it's not because somebody's holding a gun to my head. It's because it is the best part of the week, and that's what I do. Does your view of the Word of God pass the trumpet test? Is it trumpeting in your ear? Does it sound like the sound of many waters? Is there some kind of majesty to the word of God, or is it a tag-along verse of emotional battery charging, which, of course, we all need, but when it's a steady stream of that and not a serious commitment to the word of God, um, when the hard days come and when your kids want answers about euthanasia and sexual orientation and science and the Bible and all the things that... Uh, we're going to have to face in the future, we better have some kind of intellectual component to why we believe what we believe. Do you pass the turning test and the majesty test and the proximity test and the judgment test and the brilliance test? And is it, uh, lastly, leading you to fall down at the feet of Jesus as dead? I want to draw you a picture now of what a person looks like who's committed to the Word of God. He passes the costly test because he doesn't let his agenda and his calendar and sports and hobbies and things in the basement and things in the garage and the box of this and that interfere with his reading of the Scriptures and he has skill and refinement of analysis of the words and his love for the Scriptures surpass all other agendas. We don't need to read a commentary even to find out what the Bible's saying because the Holy Spirit's our teacher and we've read it so much. He teaches us even when we really don't know exactly what it means because we postured our heart correctly. This individual passes the trumpet test and when God trumpets in his ear, he leaves or she leaves all else that's happening and uh, hears the voice of God. She passes the turning test and turns to Jesus to see who's talking to her. She has a sense of awe for the word of God, and it's the sound of many waters, and the majesty and holiness and sovereignty and providential power of God is evident in that person's life because their view of Jesus is correct, and it hasn't been watered down by a culture that's just deformed the picture that we read here. 
this person loves the church because when John turned and he saw and he saw the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the first thing he saw was that he was in the midst of the lampstands, which John tells us are the seven churches. That Jesus in the midst of his church, that the person who sits home and watches TV and doesn't bother going to church because they're all hypocrites, well, of course we are. Well, don't you want to join us or are you not a hypocrite? The person loves the word of God because Jesus is, or the church of God because Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. Uh, he sees uh, that the sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth and it's very, very clear and the Savior is bright and he follows the natural consequences of hearing and seeing and understanding and falls at the feet of Jesus. Um, what's replaced your love for the word of God? If there's some things that are there, I want you to identify them. And I want you to ask yourself, can I make a 10-year commitment to the word of God? I'm not joking. Can you make a 10-year commitment to the word of God? What will your child look like in 10 years if you made a commitment to the Word of God? And that child knew that you were unabashed, not turned away, fully committed to the Word of God. What will your child look like? Draw me a picture of your child in 10 years if you are sold out to the scriptures and the testimony of Jesus because there's really no difference between the word and the word because Jesus is the word of God. <clears throat> it says, John says, he placed his hand on me, fear not, write this down. Folks, write it down. If you're committed to the scriptures, you'll see the Savior, and your kids will see him. I want to read for you what John Patton's son said about him. His son parted to be a missionary, uh, and he, uh, got to get the beginning part of it. I'll pick up right here. <clears throat> they walked down a road for six miles together. The son turned. He started walking by himself. He turned around, uh, waving my hat in adieu. Goodbye, I was round the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Rising up cautiously, I climbed up the dike to see yet um, stood where I, uh, see if he stood where I left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after I had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down and, 
his face toward home and began to return, his head still uncovered and his heart, I felt sure, still rising up in prayers for me. I watched through blistering tears till the form faded from my gaze. And then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father or mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted has oft through life risen vividly before my mind and does so now as as if it had been an hour ago. In my early years particularly, listen to this, in my early years particularly, when exposed to many temptations, his parting form rose before me as that of a guardian angel. It is no Phariseeism but deep gratitude which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped me keep pure, keep me pure from prevailing sins and also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties that I might faithfully follow his shining example. Now, I didn't spend 45 years on an island amongst cannibals, and I can't say that there's 35, uh, 25 missionaries on 30 islands in one of the hardest places on earth, but folks, my kids are going to see me committed to the word of God till the day I die. And they'll have that fused in their mind, just like I have fused in my mind of my father sitting on his couch, struggling to read a Hebrew Bible, an engineer not educated in theology, going to a synagogue to learn the Hebrew text so he could read it for himself. Folks, we have got to pay the price for the scriptures. And I know some of you, you want to get home to your roast that's in the oven and 45 minutes of listening for me pleading through tears that you would have some kind of commitment to the scriptures so that your children don't go the way of all flesh. And when they have to battle humanism, evolutionary philosophy, social Darwinism, and all the implications of immorality, pornography, violence, and everything on TV, you need to have a commitment to the scriptures because if you don't, your children will be a casualty and you'll wake up and say, I did everything I could, and you did not. You did not because your commitment to the scriptures was partial, partial. Listen, it's a trumpet, And if I can trumpet to you today, I'll say it as loud as needed to, even whether my kids like me screaming or not. It's the scriptures. It's the word of God. It's not a suggestion. It's not a suggestion. And we live in opulence and money and two cars and a house and lots of debt. And somehow we've lost the most important thing. And when our children look at our Bible, it probably doesn't look like grandma's Bible. Because we've spent too much time in secondary agendas. Folks, we need a 10-year commitment to the scriptures. 
And then we'll see our children, hopefully, maybe they'll be preserved from the onslaught that is coming into their lives. And I haven't even begun to describe what it's really going to be like for them. Because when they can access it on their phone, now, where are we going to be in 10 years if we don't have some kind of commitment to the scriptures that is unfailing, uh, that we don't budge from where we need to be, folks. We need to get up early. We need to stay up late. We need to spend some money taking courses so that we're the kind of Christians that we need to be so that our children say of us, I kept myself from sin of my youth because I watched my father and I didn't want to disappoint his shining example that he left for me. And God knows that I have not been what my father is. Hopefully my kids will surpass their teacher and your kids will do that too. But it ain't gonna happen if we're sitting on the couch doing nothing when the scriptures are unopened. Folks, it's a costly thing to say, no, we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to go there. No, we're not going to spend that money. And that our kids will see us, that our commitment to the scriptures is unshakable, unchangeable. I'm deeply sorry that I went over my preaching time. I determined today that I was going to preach. If this were my last sermon, this would be it. That if I die before I ever preach again, this is what I would say. And so you've heard it. Hopefully I won't die. (laughs) So serious am I. I've lived it, and I'm committed to living it. And this church ought to be committed to living it. It's not music, and it's not renovations, and it's not a Christian school that's going to save our church and our families. It isn't. It's moms and dads that are committed to the Word of God and the Savior whose picture is clear. Eyes are a flame of fire, hair as white as snow, feet like bronze, and out of his mouth goes a two-edged sword. Father, we uh, pray that we would be what we needed to be, that we need to be, that our future, and the future of our children and the future of our church and the future of our nation would somehow uh, be salvaged uh, in spite of our compromises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The closing song that we had picked actually focuses on the manger. And um, I don't feel led to do that. So I think what we will do is allow that prayer to be our close. And, um, and then we'll focus on the Jesus who has the eyes of fire and not the manger ground this morning. You're dismissed. <laughs>